Well, what a blessing just today in the songs. Uh, wow, how deep the Father's love for us. We're going to look at that today. If you got your Bibles with you, would you open them up to the book of Acts? And we're going to begin in chapter 9. I do want to say welcome to any of our visitors we have today. Um, uh, some of them are, are really special to me. My, my mom and my dad and my niece are here today. Uh, I always forget to spotlight them, and I know they love that. My mom's one of those people that likes to spotlight on her, my dad too. But I'm really glad they're here, thankful for them. If you got your Bibles, we're going to read down from verse 1 to verse 9. And the Scripture reads and says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling... It happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And and he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Father, this morning I'd like to just come before you, and my prayer, God, today is in the preaching of your word that that, God, that you would get glory for yourself, that our eyes would be opened to maybe things we've never seen, that our minds would be stirred to truths that we know and we have grown lax in them. But we do pray that your word is proclaimed and that Christ is magnified. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today, the, the sermon uh, will pretty much just be titled, The Conversion of Saul. That's what we're going to be looking at. And so we want to just get right into this, because I've already had a few comments made that um, they heard I was preaching and they packed a lunch. Okay, Wednesday would just happen. Okay, it ran a little bit long. It's not like you died or anything, because you're here. So I will try to keep it as brief as I can. I don't know what that means, but the Bible says, now Saul... Still breathing threat and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest. Now, if you remember a few chapters back, we, we got a look at, at this Saul, the very first time he's mentioned. And I'll just flip back a page or so, and Stephen's preaching uh, the longest sermon that's recorded in the book of Acts. And it says this, it says that... Um, In the last part, I'll begin in verse 57. It says, they cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears. And they're doing this at Stephen's preaching and and basically telling them they are the ones 
that are guilty. And it says, and they rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's the first time that Saul is mentioned in Scripture. And no doubt Saul was one of them that was probably one of the Hellenistic Jews that was arguing and debating with Stephen and was so furious that they could not confound the preaching of Stephen. And, it, and, it, and, and so they stoned Stephen to death. And it says they laid their robes at this young man named Saul at his feet. Now, what that would indicate was that he was the guy in charge of the stoning. And then in verse 8, it picks up and it says Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, talking about Stephen. And it says, and on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles and some devout men. They buried Stephen and they made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. And he would put them in prison. The word ravaging is just what it sounds like. It's like a pack of wild dogs or wolves just tearing into something There's a book that I read a few years ago about a man that was in Russia. He was raised up in an orphanage. And as he began to be in the teenage years, he was he was in the Communist Party and he was part of the military group. And and they took all these 18, 19, 20 year olds and they would do this very thing to the churches in Russia. And they would pick out the biggest and the strongest and kind of the meanest guys. And they were like a secret group. And they would find out where churches were having these, these secret home church meetings. And when the meeting was going on, they would burst into the scene. And they would just start beating people. Women, children, men, aged, it did not matter. And if you ever read this book, it's called The Persecutor. When you read the descriptions, he talks about at times he could see the face of a young girl He just beat her with his fists. Paul was ravaging the church. In Acts 22, in verse verse 4, as he's given his testimony, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. And he says, and the high priest And all the council of the elders can testify from them. I received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus. That's where we're at right now. So so Paul, it, it talked about how that he put many to death. It wasn't just Stephen. He would take Christians, women and and men and. He would bring them and bind them into prison. He would kill some or he would be the one that was in charge of that. And this is where we get our beginning of who Saul is. Now, this comes on the heels of the persecution that has spread that's caused the disciples to go out into the world and evangelize. Can you imagine that Paul has just heard the news about Samaria? I mean, how angry could that make a Jew? Not only does he hate the Samaritans, but this upstart group that is claiming these these claims that this Jesus, whom they crucified, is alive and 
They're going out and spreading this, and it's infected all of Jerusalem. And now they've even taken this stuff to, to Samaria. I mean, there's got to be such a hatred there. And it says he's breathing threat and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest, and he's asking for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. Now, you've got to understand something. You want to talk about a hatred. Damascus is 150 miles from Jerusalem. You're going to have to travel north, and you're going to have to travel to the east a little bit to get to Damascus. Have you ever been just so furious at somebody? Well, I'll do it like this. Wives, you ever been furious at your husband? Nobody's going to admit that. Well, you go take a 20-minute drive, 30-minute drive, and you cool down a little bit. Have you ever been so furious at somebody that you're going to drive a long ways to confront them? Only to find out that when you get there, that, that heated up anger is no longer really there. You're trying to recreate something. Well, Paul is going to travel 150 miles to Damascus. And this anger is going to do nothing but build. And he's not driving in a car. He's either walking or he's on horseback or camel or I don't even know what he was on, but he wasn't going fast. So he gets these letters. He's getting authority. It's like having a search warrant. It's about it's, it's like having a, a something to go and arrest somebody that's legal. Now, even though the Romans controlled things, they allowed the Jews to kind of do their own thing as long as they didn't get out of order. So they they had jurisdiction here. And so he goes there, and if he, and if he found any belonging to the way, and the way is in caps there, if you've got a New American Standard or a, a New King James, and that's what the early church was called. I don't know if anybody's ever thought of that for the name of a church, but that'd be a good one. But if anybody was found belonging to the way, says both men and women, he would bring them bound to Jerusalem. And no doubt some of these we put on trial and probably put to death. Now, why was Paul doing this? I want to show you something real quick. If you flip over, to, you don't got to flip over. I'll be really quick with it. But in John chapter 16, listen to what it says. In verse 1, he says, These things I've spoken to you so that you may not that you, that you may be kept from stumbling. Now, what he's talked about is the disciples, how they're going to be hated by the world, and they're going to be persecuted, and all these things. And he says, they, talking about the Jews and those that would be against you, he says, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. They're going to kick you out. He says, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. The Apostle Paul thought he was doing God's work by getting rid of Christians, by trying to snuff out the name of Jesus Christ. And he says, these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. This is where the Apostle Paul was at at this time. We know he's going to become Paul, but he's using his Jewish name Saul here. And I love verse 3. He says, as he was traveling, it happened. Now, you've got to have a New American Standard to read that, but I love that. It happened. That it happened is what I commonly call that divine appointment. 
It happened. And I got to catch up on my notes. I will probably be using some of them today. Now, I want you to think about this. He's coming to Damascus. He's gone probably 145 or 148 miles. He's nearing it. Can you imagine what is going through Paul's mind? He knows that a lot of disciples are there. He knows there's some synagogues there. And this wrath, I mean, can you, have you ever got close to your enemy and you, I mean, you start thinking, I mean, you're driving on the way and you're thinking of all these things you're going to do and you're going to say, and you've got this imaginary war between words or whether it gets physical. And Paul's probably just drooling at the mouth, just picturing this. He's probably thinking things like this. Yeah, I put that Stephen to death. He thought he was something. He thought he really knew stuff. He was probably furious over Jesus' claim that he was deity. Furious over the disciples' claim that this Jesus, who was cursed by God because he, he died on a tree, that he's the Messiah, that he's risen from the dead, that he's alive. He's furious over the preaching of the gospel. He's furious over... The the disciples had been threatened. They had been beaten. And they just continue to persevere in the proclaiming of this. He thought about the Samaritan believers, maybe. Was furious over that. And boy, this one will get churches all the time. In, In spite of all the threats, in spite of all of everything that was against them, the beatings, the the threat, all these different things. This church, this way, just continued to grow and to grow and to grow. And now they're outside of Jerusalem. Saul is obsessed with wiping out everyone who is of the way. Whether it's through prison, beatings, or death. Saul's purpose now is to rid the earth of this Jesus and his disciples. So I want to show you something about this as we look at this. I want to read 3 through 6 real quick. Listen, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, Wednesday night, if you weren't here... We're going through what we call TULIP, the Doctrines of Grace, and I taught on unconditional election, and I, and I really taught on it, didn't I? Somebody said amen out there? Who was that? Paul Wilson, probably. Okay, so I want to show you something. When it comes to salvation, do you understand that God saves who He wants to save? I mean, let's, let's just let's recap real quick. Who was Saul? Was Saul a man seeking God? Was Saul this guy that we see so much potential in? If I, we say that all the time, don't we? Oh, it's so-and-so. They're such a good person. All they need is to be a Christian. Look at all the good they can do. Well, no, here's Saul. Saul was breathing threat. He was breathing murder. He was putting believers into prison. He was putting some to death. He was the persecutor of the church. He was the one that was persecuting Jesus. God saves who he wants to save. Have you ever heard of a a man named David Berkowitz? 
Some of us are a little bit older. We know who that is, don't we? Back in the 70s, he went by a name called Son of Sam. David Berkowitz was a serial killer and a rapist. If you ever get the chance, Google his testimony. How could God save someone like David Berkowitz? How could God do something like that? I don't know the the lady's name, but there's a lady from Texas who at one time was over like the abortion clinics in Texas. I don't know how many would have been under her authority, probably into the possibly millions of babies that were murdered through abortion. And yet you can hear her testimony today. Sometimes we look at people like that and we say, how, how could somebody like that be saved? Well, let me tell you this, the same way that he can save the child that's raised up in a godly home, in a Christian home. And they look there in their pride and they look at somebody like a David Berkowitz and say, he deserves to go to hell. But not me. Now, nobody says this. Openly and outwardly, but on the inside, I've heard, I've heard people who've been truly converted, their testimony was this. I raised, I was raised as a Christian. All I really had to do was just make it official. Until the day that God really opened their eyes and they realized they were steeped in their pride because they thought they really didn't need much help at all. Now, how could God save someone like the Apostle Paul? When Paul says, I was the chief of sinners. Now, I'm going to tell you something. David Berkowitz was a vile man. The lady that was over the abortions, a vile woman. And they were doing horrendous things. But Saul, his object of obsession was Jesus Christ himself. Have you ever thought... That after Paul's conversion, have you ever wondered if there were any saints that were still in prison because of him? Have you ever wondered about Paul at night sometimes thinking back to, 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 to Stephen saying, Lord, lay not this to their charge. And thanking God that God didn't lay it to his charge. God can save who he wants to save. The second thing is this. God saves when he wants. I've heard Christians at times, they they get saved later in life. Listen to this. God saves some people early in life. Some he saves late in life. You see, every believer has that divine appointment. Every believer has that. I can't tell you why. I used to be angry. Because at the age of 37 years old or 38, somewhere around there, we came out of the church that we had been in. We had been in, we'd been deceived. And now all of a sudden, God opens my eyes to the truth. And you know what I was going on saying for so long? All of those years were wasted. Got to visit with Bob and Judy not too long ago. 
She had tears coming down her face. Saying, we've spent nearly 40 years in charismatic chaos. Thinking it was truth. Well, let me tell you something. Our God is perfect. He is just. And He is holy. And He is righteous. And that was your divine appointment day. That was it. Some, some have sinned great in comparison to others who sin little. But that timing of it is still when God wants to save. Every believer is saved at the precise moment that God planned from eternity. Let me tell you what a divine appointment is not. Now, you may be a Baptist, but I'm going to shock you today. The divine appointment is not an invitation at the end of a church service. Shock. Matter of fact, you will find no invitation at the end of a church service. I have actually heard Baptist people say, well, if we don't do an invitation... How can they be saved? I got to wonder if they've ever even read their Bible at that point. But if we don't offer an invitation and they leave tonight and they die in a crash and, and they die, they're, they're lost. Well, guess what? They did not have a divine appointment then. It was never in the books, on God's books, to have a divine appointment with them. God saves who He wants to save. God saves when He wants to save. And God saves how He wants to save. There's no two people that have identical circumstances and they're coming to Christ. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Everything that has happened in your life is coming to a pinnacle at that divine moment when God is going to meet with you. And let me tell you something. You're not getting out of it. Listen, the woman from Samaria who came to draw water at noon, Jesus says, I need to go through Samaria today, guys. Peter and John are all kind of like scratching their head like, nobody goes to Samaria. What's he talking about? They're probably not saying it out loud. He said, I've got a divine appointment there today. The worst woman in town is going to be out there drawing water. And I'm going to be waiting on her. He's never late for his meetings. And neither is the recipient. You can try to run. And God's going to outrun you. You can try to hate God, and He's going to outlove you. But you're not escaping that divine appointment. This happened to be Saul's divine appointment. And, and just, so, just so you'll know, we always hear the thing about, you know, the argument, oh, I, I chose this. I want, to, I want you to show me anywhere in this passage where, where Saul is looking to choose Jesus Christ. He hates Him. He wants to put him away once and for all. 
This heresy, this blasphemy. He wants to be rid of it. No, God had chose Saul from eternity. So no two peoples, they're, they're no, no two are alike. Um, not everyone has Paul's conversion experience, but all believers share their conversion was a miracle of God. So, so here's the thing. One, one thing I want to show you. Does anybody remember a man named, named Augustine? Do you ever remember the name in church history? One of the earliest church fathers that we, in history we talk about. Well, he was a womanizer. He was, he, was not, he was a vile person. One day he's sitting there and he hears some kids singing a song. Take up and read. Out of somewhere... He had just left a friend who's reading the Bible. He goes, comes back and says, let me see your Bible. He gets the Bible. He opens it up to Romans 13 and says, it's high time to awake out of sleep. I think that was the passage. And God converts him. His divine appointment went something like this. Kid singing a song. He has in his mind to go back and find that Bible and, re- and just opened it up and read that. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, 17 years of age. Miserable. God is working on him. He's trying to go to the Baptist church where he customarily wouldn't go to. But on this night, there was a storm that was so bad, it pushed him off the side of the street. He found himself at the front of a little primitive Methodist church out of all things. He goes in that night with a small number of people, only to find out the preacher didn't make it because he was sick, and the backup preacher was there. And Spurgeon basically said in his eloquent way, this guy wasn't any good. Very ill-equipped. That's my version of it. But this very ill-equipped, not eloquent speaker looks at this miserable young man and points at him and he says, young man, you look miserable, look to Christ. And God saved him right there. Another good friend of mine here today is Brady Brewer. Brady said he was a Christian for years. His testimony today is he'll tell you I was a false convert. And one day he picked up a gospel track. And God converted him. Everybody's conversion experience is different, but everybody's is the same in this. Every believer has a divine appointment with Jesus Christ. Everyone here. If you're a believer, you've had that divine appointment. This happened to be Saul's day. Do you remember your day? And you know what? Sometimes they happen immediately, and sometimes they're, they're a process. And if you think Paul's was... Listen, you say, well, man, you know, he didn't even hear the gospel. Let me tell you something. He heard the gospel when Stephen was preaching. They had already wrestled through those things, and he hated it. Oh, I can remember, I can remember listening to John MacArthur. That was, that was who my mom liked. He was my he was my number one enemy. I didn't know that that stuff on the radio wasn't live. Uh, a little naive there. I'd be going to work, and he would have it almost right until he got to the end. And I would run in. The, this is no lie. I would run in. And I would try to call that number. They said because I was going to straighten Johnny Mac out. Talk about dumb all the way around, right? 
You're listening to a recording, goofball. And one day, I was reading Romans chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, and a light flashed on for a brief moment, and all I could hear is John MacArthur's voice, and I thought, oh my gosh, I think I know what they're talking about. Now, I want to show you something. Not only was it Saul's divine appointment, if you look down in verse 7, it said, The men who traveled with him, they stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. There were men. I don't know how many was in his entourage. There probably were soldiers and different things. But on this particular day, the only person that we know that was saved was Saul. No one else, no one of those men does the Bible record that it was their day of salvation. So here's the thing. Let's look at the, some other things in this. Let's look at how salvation happens. In verse 4, now at this point, well, let me back up to verse 3. As he was traveling, it happened that as that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed r- around him. So he's, he's traveling. It was probably in the noonday. He can see Damascus. He's getting excited. He feels the wrath. He feels the anger. He feels that, that, that appeasement that's fixing to happen by putting these people in chains and dragging them back to Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, there's a light that outshines the sun. And in verse 4, he falls to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I will be honest. Every conversion is a miracle. Nothing less. Your conversion is nothing less than Paul's conversion. Nothing less of a miracle. But this is quite a conversion. Jesus himself shows up on the scene and speaks to Saul. And says, why are you persecuting me? Now, just very briefly, who was Saul persecuting? The church. Just know this, that when you're being persecuted, they're actually persecuting Christ. You are his extension. And just know this, that everything is being noted. Everything is being taken under the scope. He knows everything you're going through, and he knows how to deal with our enemies. But he falls to the ground, and Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? This is the call. This is what happened in his life when when Jesus calls him. So when we see this conversion, we see this call. We call it a drawing. He's Listen, Saul has ran as far as he's going to run. Jesus has outran him, he's outloved him, and now it's time for conversion. So he calls and he calls like this. Why are you persecuting me? What he's doing is this. He's showing him, you want to talk about you think you're a righteous Pharisee? You are the sinner of sinners. You are sinning against God. You're persecuting God. And Paul responds like this. Verse 5. And he said... Who are you, Lord? Right there we see his conversion. Do you think for a moment that Paul was asking that question and he was really wondering who this was? He knew who this was. 
Who, who are you, Lord? He's on the ground. There's a light that is so bright, it's blinding in a way. And he, and he responds, who are you? And he, Jesus, says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, have you ever been confronted with your sin? All of a sudden it opens up to you. You see it for what it is. I've actually heard people say that they were a worse sinner than Paul. See, because what they're looking at, they're looking at all these vile, vulgar things they did. They were a womanizer. They were a drunkard. They were a drug addict. They were all these things. An abuser of whatever it is. And they were. And And guess what? Every believer sitting here today, at one time, you were a God-hater. And if that shocks you, it shouldn't. You see, every time you rejected the gospel, you were saying, I have a better way than you, God. Every time you, you spoke evil of God in any way, you were saying, I have a better plan than you. You were telling the one, the creator, the king of kings. You were telling the Lord of lords, the God who spoke this world into existence, that you don't need him. Paul took it to a whole nother level. He was trying to put out Christ himself, eliminating every disciple till we can wipe this thing off the planet Earth. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. What was your what was your call? What did what did who spoke to you? What did Christ say to you when he called you? What was your response to him? What was that? You may be sitting here today and you've walked in and you profess that you're a believer. You may have been telling us for years. You don't even tell anybody that you lay in bed at night worried to death that if you died, you have no assurance of salvation. But because we want to put on a good appearance, we're going to keep going that way. And then, and then the way we justify that is we start looking at all these things that I'm doing. Well, I'm always doing this and I'm doing that and... I try to read my Bible. You know, I try to do that. Where are you today? On the one hand, when somebody tells me they're a believer, I take them at face value. I treat them as a believer. I talk to them as a believer. When they don't understand the speech I'm using, I talked to a young man one time. He told me he was a believer. I'm thinking, man, this is awesome. Two Christians were out working together, building some fence. The more I listened to him, I was like, I said, have you ever thought about that thing that says examine yourself, see whether you're in the faith? He goes, what do you mean? I said, what evidence do you have that you're a believer? I mean, if you was going to, you know, I said, if you were put on trial for being a believer, what evidence would convict you of such thing? And he goes, 
He goes, well, I'm not like you. I said, I didn't ask you if you was like me. I asked if you was a believer. He said, well, I don't go to church all the time. I don't read my Bible all the time like, like maybe you. I said, I didn't ask you. I said, what makes you know you're a believer? He had nothing. Other than someone told him a while back that because he said this prayer, he was a believer. Let me show you what conversion looks like. You see, once Jesus calls, once Jesus converts, then Jesus commissions or commands. And in verse 6, he tells Saul, who had come there to persecute Christians, to persecute Christ. Now, the commander is telling the disciple, he says, but get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. This is the commission. What is the response? Have you ever have you ever looked at Paul's conversion? I've preached on this a number of times. You remember the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler came to Jesus. Now you can say, well, see, here's somebody seeking Jesus. Okay, we'll, we'll use that one. He came and guess what the rich young ruler wanted? He wanted to know how to go to heaven. He says, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, at first he called him good master. We know the story. He said, why are you calling me good? There's none good but God. And, and he says, well, what do, what do you read? He says, you know, he says, Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what, keep the commandments. And the young man says, well, which ones? And he lists off five of the Ten Commandments. And if you're counting them, it was number five through number nine. And it was the commandments that are dealing with love your neighbor as yourself. You know, honor your mother and your father. You know, don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery. Don't uh, These things here. And he says, wow, I mean, what good news is that? He says, I've done all those things from the time I was a youth. Jesus says, oh, okay. He says, well, if you'll be perfect, he says, then, then do this. I want you to take everything you have. I want you to sell it. I want you to give all of that. I want you to, to distribute all that money. I want you to give it to the poor. I want you to take up your cross, and I want you to follow me. And when the young man heard that saying, his head dropped his heart sank, and he just left, sorrowful. Why? Because he had a lot of money. He had a lot of possessions. Do you know what Jesus just did to him? He demonstrated a, a couple of things. One, the very thing that he thought he had did since he was a youth... He'd never really done it. He'd never loved his neighbor as himself. Why is that true? Well, because when you add commandment number 10, commandment number 10 nullifies all those other ones when you think you've done it. He says, thou shalt not covet. Well, I've never killed anybody, but I've hated a lot of people. I've never committed adultery, but I've lusted after a lot of women or men or whatever it is. I've always did what mom and dad said I'd do, but I kind of did things behind their back. But more importantly than that, he did not love God with all of his heart, his soul, and his strength and his mind. We have Saul, on the other hand, that has came 
the persecutor of the church. And Jesus says to him, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground. And though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, what we're seeing is this. Jesus says, get up and go to Damascus. He's giving him a command. He's, he's going to give him the commission here. He can't see. He's blind, but he is obedient to what Jesus has told him to do. You want to know what the sign of conversion is? The ultimate sign? Are you trying to be obedient to Christ? Are you obeying Christ? Are you... The definition of a Christian is not someone who says they're a Christian. The defining point of a Christian is, are you obeying Christ? Now, I'm not talking about perfection. We know that there's nobody in here without sin. But I'm talking about, is it your heart's desire to obey Christ and follow Him? What is there in your life that is so much that it would keep you from following Christ, keep you from coming to Him today? This may be your divine meeting today. You, you, may, you may ask the question again, why would Jesus choose a man like Saul? Why didn't Jesus, why didn't he save him before he had Stephen stoned to death? Why didn't he save him? There's people that say stuff like this all the time. Well, if God would have just saved him back then, or they'll say it like this, if he had just gave his life all that trouble. Listen, all those troubles are working together, but to answer the question... Of why would Jesus save a person like that? Why would he save a guy like David Berkowitz? Because some 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ went to a cross. And he stepped in the place of David Berkowitz. He stepped in the place of Saul of Tarsus. He stepped in the place of Boyd Gross. And he says, Father, you take that wrath and you pour it out on me in full fury. Everything that Caleb deserved, pour it out on me. And why did he do that? Because from eternity, he had set his affection on Saul. He had set his affection on Tim. From eternity. So when we ask the question, why, why would Jesus choose a man like Saul? Because he set his love on him. If you are a believer here today to answer the question of, and if you've never asked the question, why in the world would God save me? Then I got to wonder about your salvation. I wonder that all the time. Why would God save me? 
See, I know me better than anybody knows me in this room. And I think about me, I think about what I'm like, what I was like, and I wouldn't have saved me. I know this guy way too well, man. He's just not worth saving. But yet, in spite of that, God set his love and his affection on me. So where are you today? What is your conversion story? Do you have one? Do you know that if you died today, do you know where you will spend eternity? Or are you like Brady was? Like I was? Thinking I know Jesus because of things I've done or things I'm doing? Or have you really truly come to trust In the saving power of Jesus Christ alone. Where are you at today? You guys are ready. Father, I just want to come before you and just thank you, God, today. I'm thankful for the story of Saul, the miracle of conversion. Greater than the miracle of the creation that we read about in Genesis, where God, that you speak life into dead people. Not only dead, but people that hate you. And we're so numb to that that we don't even realize it. And in spite of all of our fightings against you, Father, you loved us when we were not worth loving, you saved us when we were not worth saving. You've made us a new creation in Christ Jesus. You've given us a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify you in all that we do. You've given us a a message to proclaim so that others could hear and turn to the risen Christ. Lord, today we just want to praise you and thank you, God, for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.